When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to the Bridge the Divide podcast with Erica Turner and Heidi Wheeler, hosts and founders of the group Bridge the Divide Cedarburg. We hope to provide a forum for discussion and action around racial reconciliation. We seek to identify instances of inequality, foster empathy, and educate others to recognize their part in problems and solutions in Ozaki County and beyond. Hello, Bridge community. Welcome back to another podcast brought to you by Erica and Heidi. We're hey, on Heidi. a roll. We're we on are. We're we haven't it. missed very many, right? No, we're back in the swing because there's and lots to talk about and a lot there's, of great there's guests. a ton to talk about. And our our lovely producer, Jeff, and our uh, host at CPL Radio is always game for a good podcast. So we figure we'll just keep them coming. And please, we, we don't say this as much as we should. If you have ideas, if you have thoughts about a guest, if you have a topic that you think would be um, something that we can talk through, we would love to do it. We're, we're not limiting, you know, what kind of things we talk about on a podcast. But, you know, it's also great to be CEOs of your own podcast. So how do you and Erica talk about what they want to talk about? Mm-hmm. Yay us. Mm. <laughs> But today we have reached out to friends. And um, if you've been listening to us for any length of time, we talk about race. We talk about race and racism and how racism shows up and and what kind of things we can do to help um, eradicate racism, help get people turn towards uh, anti-racism versus just not being racist. But you also hear a lot of things about um, African-Americans and white people. Mm. And, and, and part of that is because, hello, I'm Erica, I'm black. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Erica and I'm white. I mean, I'm Heidi and I'm white. <laughs> 
so a lot of times that's that's how our conversations go because that's the the that's the place that we know most about that's the easiest Mm -hmm. for us to reach out and share um lived experiences with you about uh about race but we also try to make sure you understand that there isn't a binary in the country that racism solely affects uh black people Mm -hmm. that the only um conflict or the only crucial conversation is white and black there are lots of other races around that are having the struggle and some are having those conversations and we really try we're trying to work on making sure we can amplify their voices here too Mm -hmm. and today we have a lovely Oneida citizen of Ozaki County Ms. Kate Erickson. Kate thank you so much for coming. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. Tell us, introduce yourself to us. Well, uh, as Erica said, my name is Kate Erickson. Uh, I am an enrolled member of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin, and I have lived in Cedarburg since about I think it was 2007, 2008. Um, and I am currently a history faculty at the Milwaukee Area Technical College. Good to have you, Kate. Thank you so much for coming. We appreciate it. We need all the voices. So I'm happy to add. (laughs) One of the things that we talk about a lot is, you know, folks lived experiences. If we think Mm -hmm. that it's important for you to listen to the voices of um, Black, Indigenous, people of color, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, we need Mm -hmm. you to hear those voices. So we need to help bring those voices to you because, again, we are in Ozaki County. We're a proximity to people of color or um, it's it's very limited. (laughs) (laughs) It just is. So Mm -hmm. we want to bring your voice so that folks who have not had a meaningful, intimate conversation with um, Indigenous folk can can have a virtual conversation with you and they can listen to your story. Mm-hmm. And, and how would you tell your story? What, you know, we have an open-ended that mm-hmm. if we say, hello, it's nice to meet you, Kate, tell me your story. How, how would you do that? Well, for me, you know, my, my story isn't, you know, the universal experience, you know, of a native growing up in Wisconsin, you know, or the the Great Lakes region. But I would have to say, I'm sure a lot of natives have experienced some of the things that I have growing up. Um, I may live in Cedarburg now, uh, but I actually grew up in northern Wisconsin, in Shawano. It's about half hour west, northwest of Green Bay. It also happens to be just a few miles south of the Menominee and the Stockbridge-Munsee Mohican reservations. So Shano was and is predominantly white, but there is a large uh, Latino or Hispanic population, as well as a lot of natives in proximity uh, due to Uh, the two reservations just to the north of Shano. But my experience growing up was uh, a direct reflection of my grandmother's experience 
as a child. So the way she was raised uh, then in turn determined how I was raised mm. in that town. So my grandmother, uh, Dorothy, my father's mother, was 100% Oneida, full blood. And she was the oldest of five children. And at the age of five, she was placed in a boarding school in Wittenberg, Wisconsin. And the whole idea of these boarding schools was to essentially make native children white. Mm. Um, a lot of the catchphrase was kill the Indian and save the man. Um, and mm. this comes, wow. yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, you know, Kate, it's reflective Kate, what of what decade? happened. What day, around what decade was this? Just um, so the boarding schools were largely in operation from uh, the Civil War, uh, just to the end of the Civil War, uh, we have the first federally sanctioned and funded boarding school opening up in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, uh, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. Um, and then the boarding schools by and large ran well up into uh, the early 1970s. Oh, wow. So okay. we're talking uh, mid to late 1860s up into the 1970s. And really the, the premise was, we're going to teach you how to be white. Um, oftentimes, if you had a name that was too indigenous, they would, they would change it. Um, they would cut your hair. You were forbidden from speaking your language or practicing any of your customs. Uh, she, at her particular school, uh, learned how to cook and to clean. Um, how to take care of kids, but it, it was very uh, military regimented. You mm. lived by bells and whistles. Um, there was a lot of physical and sexual abuse that mm. was happening in the schools. Um, many of the boarding schools actually have cemeteries mm. uh, because of the children that oftentimes um, died from poor treatment or from disease. They were breeding grounds uh, for disease because many of the European diseases, natives had never experienced them mm. before. So you kind of have this perfect storm where these smallpox and other things would, would mm -hmm. the dormitories. But her school in particular, um, one of their modes of punishment for speaking your language, and in her case, it was Oneida, um, they would take the fingers um, of your left hand and they would place them in the door jam uh, by the hinges and slam the door shut on your fingers, flattening oh my them. Gosh. So I never understood why she had terrible arthritis, but you could tell that the fingers on her left hand were a little bit wider and flatter uh, than the mm -hmm. ones on her right hand. And a lot of that had to do. So it happened um, multiple times. Oh, yes. Yes. Who, mm -hmm. Kate, just for context, as we're listening to your story, um, who is the they? Is it the federal government or is it private institutions? So these, these schools were sanctioned by the federal government. And with the sheer number of children, so the, you know, it's, it's very much along the idea of you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It's much easier to change the children. They're like little sponges. You can mold them. So uh, schools like Carlisle served as the model for boarding schools as they spread across the country. 
after a while, uh, we've got so many schools popping up that the federal government um, is not able to pay to run them all solely. So what the government ended up doing was hiring churches mm-hmm. to operate mm-hmm. these facilities. Mm-hmm. So the facility that uh, my grandmother was in, in Wittenberg, Wisconsin, was a Lutheran facility. So the so churches save the, were... Save the man is save them physically from, oh, the barbarianism and save them their, their souls. religion. Yeah, save yes. their souls. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is part of the larger practice. So when we're, we're talking about the time frame that these schools are beginning, we are at that time still um, in the 1850s, 1860s, being placed on reservations in order to open up land for settlement. Mm -hmm. Now, the idea was these reservations could be schools of assimilation, where you live in these fenced areas. Um, it's often referred to as concentration policy because you're concentrating natives down onto these small pieces of land where you can control uh, the food they can eat. You can control the housing they live in, the clothing they wear, uh, the language they're allowed to speak. Uh, if you were going to be going to uh, the Indian agent office to ask for help or assistance, uh, they would demand you do it in English. You know, so it was, we have you captive we can start to Americanize you. Because eventually the federal government realizes, oh shoot, some of this reservation land is actually valuable. Like the Black Hills, for example, Mm. and the area of Mount Rushmore. And realizing that natives aren't disappearing. You know, we're not uh, assimilating into American society and, and, and quietly fading away. Uh, because by that point in time, the federal government has realized that uh, the hundreds of treaties they had made uh, with promises of, we'll let you keep this land forever. We'll pay for your health care for forever. We'll pay for your education for forever. Um, to them, for forever was starting to look like for forever. So if we can force the indigenous into American society and have them fade away by being embraced by America, then the reservations go away. uh, The need to pay for uh, what they promised under the treaties goes away. So um, allowing the churches to help would speed up this process of Americanizing and, and by and large Christianizing. And, and it worked with my grandmother in her case. Hmm. Um, she left school when she was 15, did not know her language, did not know her culture, the customs, um, because essentially she had been converted to Christianity. Hmm. Now, during the summers, while she was still in school, um, a lot of these schools, and not not just the uh, church-run schools, but a lot of them would have summer outing programs where students could be sent to live with white families in order to, in their mind, practice what they've learned. We're mm-hmm. seeing how well they fit in. And she was farmed out to one of the local Lutheran Norwegian families in the area. 
And so this is all Shawano County area, Wittenberg, Bowler, whatnot. And during the summer, she essentially served as their free live-in nanny and maid. Mm-hmm. Now, when she finished school at 15, one of, one of the fears was that these students would go um, back to the blanket, as they called it. We didn't, we didn't want these children to go back to their tribes, to go back to the reservations. We wanted them to you know, fit into American society. But when she got out of school, she didn't really have a relationship with her parents. She didn't really know her parents. And the younger siblings that had been born while she was at school, she didn't really have a relationship with them either. You know, she's not, she's not really white, but she's not really Oneida either. You know, so that feeling of, you know, being in between two worlds, not really fitting. So Mm -hmm. she went back to what she knew and she married um, into the family that she had been farmed out to over the summers. And that's how she met my grandfather, who uh, was born in Norway. Uh, He immigrated when he was four uh, and he was around 20 years her senior. So she was quite a bit younger, quite a bit younger. (laughs) Yes, yes, quite a bit younger. What about your your grandmother's, her her physical, you know, sometimes we'll talk about like my grandmother was was light enough and had features that were ambiguous enough that she passed. How, what was the the physical look of your grandmother? Um, Did she present as white? Was it something that people thought they could see right away or, or not really? The way that she dressed and the way that she spoke and the way in which she carried herself did not fit uh, what was stereotypically native back then. Hmm. And she would regularly say, I'm not an Indian. I'm French Canadian. <laughs> she mm-hmm. That's why I have a little bit darker complexion. I'm mm-hmm. French Canadian. Sounds like some some real code switching there. Mm. Yep. As a way to cover for it, you know, Mm -hmm. and then you mix in my grandfather who was blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, Norwegian through and through. Um, Their children were by and large able to pass as white, which Mm -hmm. she insisted they do. Mm -hmm. Um, So the schooling, it kind of worked. It, it stripped it her. It stripped her of her identity. It did. It did. And unfortunately, she did not learn how to parent. You know, you look at children. You know, and my daughter included. She's she's ten years old. She's in fourth grade. Um, I remember her watching her play with her baby dolls. You know, and mimicking songs I had sang to her, you know, or not, you know, nighttime routines and whatnot. You know, children learn mm-hmm. how to parent by watching their parents. And she grew up in essentially a military boarding school. Yeah. 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 So not knowing how to parent, coupled mm. with no therapy at all for what she had experienced, she developed a serious alcohol problem Mm. and it didn't help that grandpa was the leading moonshine maker (laughs) and runner in the area as well so that was that was a volatile Mm -hmm. combination Mm -hmm. 
Very much so. Wow. So much context mm-hmm. there. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And and a, a question about the the oral history passing down. I mean, these are some mm-hmm. of the similarities that I see with um, Indian families and Black families about talking about your ancestors mm-hmm. and telling those stories so that, well, so that you don't forget, so that you don't disappear from history. Like, you mm-hmm. know, if, if you go by a book that you see or the television shows, that's not the real history and you hear it, you know, in passing this down. So how did you as a child know and hear all these stories and there are things that you, or was it something like, oh, this is something secret. And then one day when you grew up, you found out all of these things about, you know, things that grandma had to go through and, and. It was very secret. Hmm. It was, it was very, very secret. And everything I have learned about my grandmother's experience actually came from my aunt. My grandmother, Hmm. and I only directly asked her about school one time. She made it very clear. She did not want to talk about it. Hmm. But a lot of what we know of her experiences oftentimes came from what she would say while she was intoxicated. Oh, interesting. Those things would, um, would slip out mm-hmm. where when her children were younger, if they were misbehaving and she was frustrated with them, you know, the, you think you have it so bad, you know, things, things would come out, you know, you, you oftentimes, you know, have a hard time holding your tongue mm-hmm. in those cases. And I, I knew I was native. I knew I was Oneida, you know, I, I knew enough that um, I looked different from, say, my mother's side of the family. You know, it, it was obvious with some of our um, physical features, uh, skin tone, things like that, that we were, we were something else. Mm-hmm. But that was never talked about. You know, that was, that was one of those things where as she and my grandfather were having children, they were raised Norwegian hmm. and Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't have too much of a relationship with, say, my great-grandparents, my grandmother's parents, um, until my great-grandparents were quite elderly. Um, and in that situation, my grandmother was then able to help and care for her parents um, in a way that her siblings couldn't. So later in life, she did have um, a fairly decent relationship with her parents. Um, But by and large, in my family, the language was not passed down. Mm. Customs, the culture, uh, because it literally had been beaten into my grandmother that being being an Indian was was dirty. It was bad. You know, you were Mm -hmm. going to go to hell. You needed to be white and Christian and good. so being being native was not something you discussed in front of grandma mm-hmm. if you didn't want a tongue lashing. Well, how as as, you know, grandchild and 
moving you stayed in the area of Shano while you were oh, yes. growing mm-hmm. up so so how did that translate for you and your upbringing this mm-hmm. um you know some some of the effects of what grandma had to go through or the lack of if mm-hmm. you know, she really wasn't willing to talk about it much now it, it was one of those things where I would get bits and pieces as I grew up now my father being that uh, my grandmother was 100% Oneida and my grandfather was 100% Norwegian. He was 50-50, half of each. Mm-hmm. And that, which is still the requirement now, you had to be at least one quarter blood in order to be enrolled mm-hmm. in the tribe, at least for Oneida standards. Every tribe is different as to, to the amount. Um, but because he was half, that made me a quarter, 25%. Mm-hmm. Now, there was arguing between my parents when I, and then when my brother was younger, as to whether or not we were going to be tribally enrolled. There are um, things with education in the country, uh, programs such as Johnson O'Malley and other things that were created back in the uh, 1930s, where school districts can actually get funding for native children who attend their schools. Mm. So school districts want to know if you're enrolled or not. Mm. Um, Unfortunately though, my uh, parents decided not to tell the school district that we were tribally enrolled. So I was um, enrolled in the tribe when I was in second grade. And uh, instead of letting the school district know, my parents chose not to. Uh, Hmm. And a lot of that had to do with the atmosphere Mm -hmm. uh, of the Shano area. Uh, hmm. and the attitudes towards the native population. Now, Shano is kind of, it's one of those unique unique areas really in the country. Uh, the Menominee Nation was one of the first tribes in the United States to be terminated by the federal government in the 1950s. Hmm. Um, and what that meant was according to the federal government, the tribe no longer existed. They weren't a tribe. Uh, they weren't a reservation, uh, and the Menominee Reservation officially became Menominee County, Wisconsin's 72nd County. So the Menominee Reservation being just a five-minute drive north of Shano, um, there was a lot of, for lack of better terms, racism going on. A, a lot of the ideas were that, you know, the reservation was bad, you know, now we've got to deal with all of these Indians uh, because when the county or the reservation was turned into a county, the school buildings on the reservation did not meet state fire codes and, mm. and safety standards. So those students were bused to Shano Public Schools. And a lot of the non-Native parents were very upset about that. Mm. Fast forward to January 1st, 1975, the tribe managed to fight to be recognized again. So there's now, as of then, a Menominee Nation, and the parts of their reservation that hadn't been sold off were turned back over to them. So now after that point, you have the sentiment in town that, well, if you wanted your reservation back so bad, you should stay on it. Mm -hmm. So growing up, that was the idea. You stay on your reservation. And it didn't matter that I wasn't Menominee. You know, it, does, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, we were Indians. And 
because of the Norwegian in the family, I could do the whole pass as French Canadian. Mm -hmm. And so rather than being stereotyped, my parents chose to raise us as white Mm -hmm. and list us as white with the school district Mm -hmm. uh, to protect us essentially. Mm -hmm. Now that was hard because I knew what I was, but I had to be white. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure you're all aware of No Child Left Behind. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I say it sarcastically, the brilliant success that it was. um, (laughs) Title title six was kind of the precursor to that. Uh, Native kids were actually kind of in in an experiment to see how a a program like that would go. Hmm. And the teachers at Shano, when I was in school there, called it the brown kid room. Mm. Yes, yes. So Native students um, had to be assigned to those classrooms to get, you know, the help uh, that they were supposed to get under uh, the policies that allowed schools to have extra federal funding for them. Um, and the general stereotype was, you know, if, if you're a Native kid going to Shawano Public Schools at that time, and this is the 90s, Mm. 80s, 90s, and into the early 2000s, uh, the only reason you were going to the public high school was so you could do sports because a sports scholarship was the only way you were going to go to college. Hmm. Uh, You weren't, you know, seen as uh, being smart enough, talented enough, you know, to make it on your own merit, you know, otherwise you're just going to end up, you know, in my case, I would be, you know, barefoot and pregnant back on the reservation, you know, Hmm. kind of the the stereotype. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was hard for me growing up and knowing I had to hide what I was. And on top of that, knowing that I'm missing out on the language and the culture and the teachings and not getting any of that history that I wanted in Mm. K through 12, because you don't learn about natives in American history textbooks. Mm -mm. So there's this feeling of, well, if I have to hide what I am, I should be ashamed of it right? Mm. You know, and, and if we're not important enough to be taught about in the history books, right. and what you do learn is, is largely about, you know, extermination, removing, you know, changing your, your bad, mm-hmm. um, what that does to a kid, you know, psychologically. And, and I've seen it later in life, you know, the, um, oh, what's it called? The self-fulfilling prophecies. Right. And mm-hmm. the, um, You're not going to trust me anyway. You're not going to, you know, back me up anyway. I might as well just do whatever it is you're saying I'm doing. Because, you know, and that that imposter syndrome, you know, where you're feeling Mm -hmm. like, do, do, should, am I really qualified for this? Should I really be doing these things? You know, and it's a wonder because natives, our, our teenagers and young adults have the highest rate of suicide in the United States, Mm -hmm. the highest drug abuse rates, alcohol abuse rates. I mean, it's devastating. And, they call it intergenerational trauma. Yeah, I was oh, going to say, yeah. I'm like, that's, yeah. that's what we're talking about, that's right? What it and is. how do you, you have this, this uh, stress level cycle that you can't com- complete. You can't, you never come down from the, the stress and uh, how do you fix it? How do you cover it up? Mm-hmm. You, alcohol, drugs, you know, oh, yeah. adrenaline <laughs> junkie, something, because this is happening and not to, just to you, your parents, your grandparents, your great grandparents. It's 
it's just horrible. It's hard to it, get people to understand that too. And like, what we go ahead, Kate. No, no. I just Ask like, no, well, just like as nurses, we just, we look at even today as people of color, indigenous people, you know, black kids, people are saying, I'm experiencing trauma in your system, in your institution. Um, I'm trying to be resilient, but no one's listening to me. And it sounds like, exactly. I mean, like our, ins- so many of our institutions have been built on, on, uh, in unhealthy patterns of relating. And I mean, just thinking about what your grandma had to go through mm-hmm. and how she was shamed for her differences. I mean, these things are continuing and mm-hmm. people, people still don't see it. They yeah. still don't see it. They just, you know, what, when you talk about Native Americans with people, it's, oh, they're drunks or, oh, they're mm-hmm. casino. They got their casino. It's like all these terrible stereotypes mm-hmm. that you know, it's because of this intergenerational trauma and all these things that were done to them that aren't even acknowledged. Like we can't, mm-hmm. you know, we don't talk about that in our history classes. And go back to your cultural humility. Yeah. Like if you could just stop for a minute listen to someone's story, put yourselves in, in their place and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, really think about how that's affecting you. And yeah, if you can't. That that was a, it was hard. I'm not going to lie. It was hard growing up and it it all kind of hit the fan my senior year. Mm. So remember earlier I had said my, my parents chose not to tell the school district. Mm Mm-hmm that I was enrolled. And the same thing with my younger brother. Um, Well, come to find out the summer before my senior year in high school that there was a family that had been offering four-year full-ride scholarships to Native students to go to any UW school they wanted to for any anything. Didn't didn't matter. Um, And you were to apply uh, the summer after your eighth grade year and for each class, they would award one Native student this scholarship. So every year you had a Native student graduating with this full ride scholarship. So of course, you know, my summer after eighth grade, we didn't receive any paperwork on it because I wasn't uh, enrolled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was white. <laughs> and so come to find out uh, the summer before my senior year, the girl from my graduating class who was awarded the scholarship lost it um, due to violating the little ethics clause. So you had to maintain a certain grade point average, you know, you couldn't get in trouble for anything or you'd lose the scholarship. So um, the class was encouraged to, you know, native students resubmit your, your, your uh, applications for the scholarship and we're gonna pick somebody uh, to give it to because obviously they had lost their candidate and my mom was by that point in time working for the school district and so she heard about it and having a good relationship with the superintendent she went to the superintendent and said can Katie apply and he kind of looked at her and said she's listed as white and like yeah she's not and he told my mom he said had she applied for it the first time she would have gotten it she would have had it this whole time and my mom was really concerned she says I don't 
want to take this opportunity. You know, I don't want people thinking, oh, well, we're only jumping in here because it's a scholarship opportunity. I mean, my mom worked as an aide in the Shano School District. My dad spent 35 years in the paper mill there. Uh, they weren't going to pay to send me to college. You know, and we all know, unfortunately, taking out loans, you could be paying for college till you're 70. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they, they knew I, want, I, I wanted to go. I wanted to go. I was, by that time, I had been president of the student council for three years. Um, I was uh, one of the student uh, managers for the football team. I was on the boys' soccer team and the girls' soccer team. Oh, I did Kate was that and person. Oh, and... <laughs> and <laughs> whole list oh my gosh yeah good grades everything but I didn't fit the stereotype of -hmm. what a native student should be Mm -hmm. so my mom talked to the superintendent he says she needs to apply because she needs to go to school she needs to go Mm -hmm. to school and so I applied and so first couple weeks of senior year you know get going and one morning before school on a Monday my mom comes to me and says Katie you should dress up for school today I'm like, mm. oh, I was the jeans, t-shirt, ponytail, no makeup girl. <laughs> the only time I wore dresses was like prom at homecoming. That was it. And even then my dad picked them out because I didn't do all the foofy lace and stuff. So she's trying to get me to dress up and I'm like, what's going on here? And I'm being set up. And she says, well, you have to go in and do an interview today for the scholarship. It's between you and a couple other people. They want to interview you. I'm like, okay, I'll put some dress pants on. All right. I get to school, I get called down to the office during first period, um, and it's not an interview. I was being awarded the scholarship. Mm. So she, pranked, she, she punked me. Nice. Um, so my dad was there, and my, they pulled my brother out of school and brought him there, and the newspaper was Aww. there, and the family that, you know, uh, is the one who was giving out the scholarships, they were there, and then the, the freshman who was being awarded, she was there as well. Um, and it was great. I was so excited because I knew, okay, I can, I can go to college now. I don't have mm-hmm. to worry about how am I going to pay for this? Mm-hmm. And it was fantastic. Did pictures for the newspaper, got to have some cake. It was great. So that was all done. Got to go back to school. So mm-hmm. third period and I can close my eyes and see the classroom, you know, and the students sitting around me. So I'm back in third period It was civics class. And that's when they usually do the morning announcements. And so they're running through the morning announcements. And just before the end, they announced that they wanted to congratulate the freshmen who had been awarded this scholarship, as well as me, the senior who now had the scholarship. But those are for Native Americans, Kate. You're white. Exactly. What are you doing? Oh, oh, it was awful. I, I sat, I, I was sitting in the classroom and I'm staring at the chalkboard in the front of the room and I could feel everybody turning and looking at me, even my teacher. Hmm. And I, I just wanted to melt. I just wanted to melt down into that chair and into the carpet and just disappear. It was, it was rough. You know, the, the, my native friends were mad at me because it was a slight against them, you know, and I could see why they were mad, mm. you know, that I didn't suffer like they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the real, the real kick in the gut was that I had some friends, some white friends who didn't want anything to do with me anymore. 
And mm. I had some white friends mm. who had parents who didn't want them to have anything to do with me anymore. And it, it was it was rough. I actually I my my parents had looked into my transferring out of Shano mm. uh, during your senior year, during my senior year, a month wow. after, you know, all of this went down. But had I transferred, I would have lost my scholarship and I couldn't I couldn't do that. So, man, I just hear a lot I, of conflict, yeah. like you've had to put up with a lot of conflict in your life, like wanting to, you know, you're proud of your heritage and you, mm-hmm. you want to know the language, like you relate, you feel a part of something, but mm-hmm. when you, you know, it's, it was a family secret for so long. And then when you wanted to come out and, and be proud of it and embrace it, um, it just sounds like you've had to deal with a lot of contract conflict and you're like kind of in the middle of two worlds where you Mm -hmm. don't fit into either which is what so many people um black brown indigenous people say is i don't i don't fit in anywhere and you don't have to the the one thing i would add is that you don't have to exhibit all of this on the surface so when mm-hmm. you have folks that are, but you're doing well in school, so it must not be a problem. Yeah. No, you're on all of these sports teams and you mm-hmm. have a fine social life. It must not be a problem. No, it's, yeah. we go back to our both. And you look, you grow up with that, that, um, that perseverance that everybody is, is applauding you for mm-hmm. means that you have to learn very early how to stuff down this in order to present this, because this yep. is what people want to see. And this mm-hmm. is what will make you successful in school, uh, in college, you know, in mm-hmm. your, in your work professional life, when you're an adult, that you have to do these things, which means it, it doesn't matter much what you think or how you feel if you have mm-hmm. to present a certain way in order to be successful. What people, what's, uh, what makes people comfortable? That's what they, how they want you to present. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, I coped in unhealthy ways. Mm. I, I stopped eating. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had teachers at the high school. My mom worked uh, at one of the elementary schools at the time calling to ask if I ate at home mm. at night because I had lost so much weight. I started cutting. Mm-hmm. you know, and wearing long sleeves, even if it was really hot outside, you know, it mm-hmm. was, it was really, it was really unhealthy, really, really unhealthy. And when I graduated high school, I couldn't get away fast enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, it, and I, I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to UW Milwaukee. Um, I'm gonna, you know, it, it's, it has the most majors and minors and all more programs than even Madison does, you know, so I'll figure out what I want to do there, you know, and it was a big city, you know, which was a contrast to Shano, you know, a little bitty Shano, but I didn't fit in there either, you know, because when, when I got to UW-Milwaukee, I didn't fit in the city. It was terrifying at first. Oh my gosh. The first time I drove Big through the Marquette city. interchange, I cried. Oh, it's okay. So I drove through there as an adult and I still, you know, do the white knuckle thing on the steering wheel going, oh my goodness. <laughs> like this, this country kid trying to fit in this city. It's like, why don't it fit here either? But I found, I found the American Indian Student Services office at UWM and mm. they became family. And they saw how I was struggling and said, let's, let's 
let's sign you up for some native history courses. You know, let's let's get you in some native anthropology or, or sociology courses trying to help fill this void. And that that's what it was. It was this hungriness for basically, you know, what I had been denied growing up. You know, it, it's and, and I laugh too because growing up I was I was raised Lutheran because of course that's what, what grandma wanted. So mm-hmm. I went through confirmation and everything. <laughs> I did I did all that. I memorized every you know, memorized everything I needed to memorize. And we had these uh had to meet with the pastor before you could get confirmed. Mm-hmm. And I sat down with him and he looked at me and he says, Katie, I know you don't believe any of this. I'm like I believe I was like I don't I, I said I don't you know people talk about how you know these you're supposed to feel so fulfilled and so so comforted by you know the bible and the verses and the teachings and you know and I just I felt so empty yet you mm-hmm. know I said this I'm not feeling how I'm supposed to feel and I thought, oh gosh, if I don't get confirmed, <laughs> my mom and my grandma are going to strangle me. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you know everything you need to know. And he says, and you're a good person. He says, that's all that matters. Just when you find what you need to find, as long as you're a good person, that's all that mattered. And, and when I finally got to UWM and I was around people that understood me, I started, I started coming around and feeling a little bit better about who I was and expressing it. But it was sad that it took, you know, 19 years, Hmm. you know, to find a place where I kind of felt like I fit in. The value another. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, Another thing that we that you said earlier on that we kind of glossed over. um, I I went to a class to learn about how we should be talking about um, Native American, American Indian first nations history in school and it was taught mm-hmm. by david o'connor which is you yes. know and he's such a fun guy he really i love is. david he's fantastic he really is but one of the things that he started out his his uh, our workshop with was let's talk about the three uh beings in this world that have um a pedigree that's measured for identification Yes. You know, we've got dogs, we've got horses, and we've got Indians. And, you mm-hmm. know, we're like, uh-uh. And I do remember one time that I, that you showed me your your card. Mm-hmm. Like, like here, proof. Yep. Mm-hmm. I believe How I is- actually <laughs> held it up at a school board meeting, too. <laughs> at one of the school board meetings, I was so incensed by a comment somebody made that... I was like, here, here's my card. I, I am literally Oneida of Wisconsin, number 12,480. That, that is me. If you look at the records, I am number 12,480. That is, and, yeah. that, that blows my mind. And, and like a couple of things you said, we're not in the 1890s, right? <laughs> we mm-hmm. are in 2021 now. And the ironic thing is these, these percentages that we are forced to identify ourselves by are from the allotment era. So they're from the, literally the 
1870s and 1880s. So <laughs> my number is based off of what my dad was and what my grandmother was and what her parents were and their parents were. But how, how are you supposed to tell what percentage people actually are? I mean, and it, these DNA tests that come out today, you, they're for entertainment. <laughs> they are not something you should be basing your family history off of. Because really, they're only looking at your maternal side and, and about 17% of your maternal side. So how, how back then in the 1880s, was the federal government able to determine, oh, well, you're full blood or you're 75 or you're half. They'd actually look for birthmarks, Mongolian birthmarks, so oh. very dark birthmarks. Yeah, the yeah. same ones that would brand you a witch during the Salem witch trials. Lovely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So they'd look for birthmarks. Um, they would, uh, there was a cranium measurement that they would take. There was actually the scale. Oh my gosh. That was created um, where the larger your head was, the larger your cranium size, the bigger your brain, the smarter you were. And there was the scale. And of course, it was just like the Chicago World's or the St. Louis World's Fair white city that was created where the lighter your skin color was, the bigger your skull. And then heads got smaller as you got to the darker skin races. So there was this kind of area within that measurement that natives were supposed to fall. And they would literally get a compass and a grease marker out and measure the various points on your skull and see where your measurement fit. And if your head was on the larger side, then that must mean you had more white ancestry. Mm. My goodness. I yes, am. I, I just posted about something similar to this. I'm going to read you the quote from Toni Morrison. Um, the function, the various serious, sorry, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says mm. you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdoms, so you dredge that up. None of that is necessary. There will always be one more thing. Yep. Yep. That's mm. very fitting. Well, and one of the ones I have my students do is actually called a scratch test, where you hold, you hold out your arm and you, you flip your, your arm up, palm up, and you take your fingernail and you scratch your forearm. And the faster that scratch turns red, the more white you are. So they would, they would actually send commissioners around and scratch the inside of your arm. And there was a counting. They would count. And however long it took meant that that's what percentage white or percentage oh. native you were. Oh, <laughs> wow. Insane. And, and those, those are the percentages we have to use today <laughs> to determine how much we are. It's crazy. There's no, there's no institutional racism. Mm -mm. There's only happy things in American history. Mm -hmm. That's all there is. Well, so, and I know that we, we, if we stay here all day, I mean, it could be fun, but I'm not sure if CPL radio really wants us to, um, <laughs> but I, but I do want to ask, we've talked about your grandma. We've talked about you. What about your daughter? What kind of, you know, a lot of us as parents, you know, we're either going to do all the things our parents did because we thought they were great or we're going to yep. do 
everything they didn't do because it was horrible and you could do so much better and then you're a parent you're like oh that's why they did that yeah that was hard so so what how does that look for you and your family raising your daughter well it's it's definitely one of those things where I am keenly aware of of what I wish could have been done differently and so for her uh, technically she's an eighth Oneida which right now does not meet enrollment Um, you have to be at least a quarter but she is listed as a descendant Um, and I definitely made the decision even before she was born that she was going to have a native identity. Her first name is Mia Coda. Um, it's an indigenous name. Uh, and I really haven't gone too far into specifically Oneida culture, history, uh, religion, longhouse, you know, the traditional things. But I definitely, from early on, read her our traditional teaching stories and talked about um, how important family is and family structure and respect um, and how we are to look to and treat the environment. Uh, and teaching her her history um, in, a, in a way that's appropriate <clears throat> for whatever age she is at the time. Sure. Because the history, it's it's ugly, you right. know, and and you have right. to be careful with with how you cover things. Uh, she right. knows about um, her great grandmother's history in the boarding schools and whatnot, um, and some of those struggles. But really, trying to have her be proud of who she is. Yeah, you know, she's not she's not full native. That doesn't matter. That right. doesn't matter that right. she's got that blood in her and I want her to be to be proud of who she is and to know who she is. Um, so I'm definitely filling in uh, where schools are kind of lacking in what they cover. But in the end, um, I want her to feel like she belongs and yes. that she's not lost. Yes, that that is a thing that we wish for for all the children and mm. and as we continue to have conversations here in our area to really understand what it feels like to be outside of that welcoming and belonging circle. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing when you don't know, but then you know, and what do you do to make that better? You know, Mm -hmm. we don't need to have to continue the generational trauma um, for the next few generations because we just don't feel like changing anything. I mean, you know, like I said, it's one thing to, to not understand something or not be aware of something, but once you're aware, you've got to do something to, to move that needle forward. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that, that's the expectation, that's the request. And we shouldn't have to beg for it, mm-hmm. right? You shouldn't exactly. have to beg to say, please see us, please recognize us, please, um, uh, acknowledge our value to society like who mm-hmm. who should be doing that <laughs> that's 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 not a thing that I'm like but mm. Kate this is this was fantastic I think yes. that we should have um a weekly session with Kate so we'll have to make that happen <laughs> Kate has a people. lot more to say I think oh yeah oh uh, yeah my dad was always he teased me you actually found a job where people pay you to talk what the <laughs> perfect <laughs> 
I said, yeah, they give me, they give me three hours of class time every week. Like, yeah. How you manage that. But. And, and that's another, <laughs> another part of what we say, right. For bridge the divide, you're at the, the similar to the bloom where you're planted, right. Work in your circle of influence. Yeah. You don't have to mm-hmm. necessarily fly across the country, do something that you're not interested in or not familiar with to say that you've done it. There are things that you can do. You're in your backyard. You're still Mm -hmm. in the state. You're still learning things and enjoying sharing them. And, and that is making a difference. And Mm -hmm. all of those differences are, are super important and we need to do it in any space, any sphere that we can. Um, So I thank you for doing that. And I'm sure that your students, after you've graded and and they've left your class, will also thank you later. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, it's it's quite it's quite surprising because, you know, my my courses aren't required. They do fulfill, you know, certain requirements. um, And especially if you're going for a teaching a teaching license in Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. it fulfills certain requirements. But so many of my students, you know, their last assignment they turn in. They tell me, I wish I wouldn't have waited until college to learn these things. Mm -hmm. And that why is it just by chance I thought this looked interesting? Am I only learning this now? Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I, I see in their writings that they're, they want to know, they want Mm -hmm. to learn more and that they're definitely more um, empathetic the issues and wanting to see change that hopefully you know we can end this intergenerational trauma and mm-hmm. and you know hopefully less than two or three generations I know, I know. that would be lovely we'll take it <laughs> and anything Kate that any um websites or any thoughts or any articles that you want to share with us we can put in our um our show notes Mm -hmm. that maybe it's the first time that some of our listeners are really starting to connect on this topic and there Mm -hmm. can be some things they can read and learn and grow from so we'll we'll uh, get those from you after and and stick those in our show notes Um, and and again hopefully (laughs) hopefully have you here a million more times we really appreciate it um I think that the only thing that we have coming up here soon is uh, there's a Black Lives Are Sacred uh, MKE um, public witness in Grafton this weekend. So if you check out our Facebook page, and I think it's on Instagram too, um, it's for an hour. It's not... um, it's not a, a march. It's it's standing and bearing witness. And and to me, that is a big thing to me because again, one of the ways to be seen because I am a Christian to think, wow, if if Christians could see and feel this grief, you know, that bearing witness and lamenting together mm-hmm. corporately is just going to be a beautiful thing. So you are invited to, for uh, that. That's this Saturday, uh, the twenty second at ten a.m. And we will continue to work on trying to have some meet and greets this summer because our bridge community has been spread over all kinds of screens and we haven't Mm -hmm. seen each other. And if you go back a couple generations in my family, you got to get in there and hug somebody's neck and and Mm -hmm. feel kind of connected again. So Mm. looking forward to, uh, to doing some of those things later on this summer. Thank you so very much for listening. Everybody have a fantastic day and we'll see you again next go round. Thanks for listening. We welcome your feedback, suggestions, and any program ideas. Spoken word artist Propaganda states, we need to consider the waters we swim in. Maybe it's not toxic to me, but it's toxic to my neighbor. 
And if it's toxic to my neighbor, it's probably toxic to me too. Let's breathe better water. Contact us on our website at www.bridgethedivide.life. You can email us info at bridgethedivide.life or reach us on social media. Facebook is Bridge the Divide Community and on Instagram, it's Bridge the Divide Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.